I'm Carrie. I'm Amy, and you are listening to The Perks of Being a Book Lover. This is a show where two friends chat about books and reading with another book lover, and we find book lovers everywhere, and talking about books is one of our favorite things to do besides hike in the beautiful state of Maine. We had a wonderful time. Did you find any book lovers up in Maine? I found lots of lovely free little libraries. Well, we may be a little biased, but we think reading people are the coolest people. So society doesn't really know what to do with older women. People give a lot of lip service to the value of older women's wisdom and experience, but older women are often forgotten, as if they don't have anything worth contributing once they hit a certain age. Our guest this week, Grace Salmon, has written a novel that tackles this modern dilemma for older women. Titled The Eves, the novel features a main character named Jessica who struggles with her own aging but is helped along in her journey by a group of even older women whose experiences and insights get Jessica to kind of screw her head on straight again. But first, before we talk to Grace, you have the the cooties in your house, Carrie. We do have the cooties. So my youngest child, who is two weeks shy of turning 12, started feeling puny on Tuesday, and I happened to have an at-home COVID test, and it came out positive. So then our district offers free COVID testing. And so I took him to one of those after school, and he definitely has COVID. He's doing fine now. For him, it has been very mild, a little bit of congestion and a low-grade fever for two days. We're trying to be very cautious because even though we're fully vaccinated, we don't want to accidentally, you know, pass it along to somebody else who may not develop, like my kid, develop a a very mild case. So uh, we have been super cautious and please, people, go get the vaccine. Billions of people at this point have had it. It's safe. Just go do it. And that's the end of Carrie's public yes. service announcement. Thanks for coming to my TED Talk. There you go. <laughs> but, you know, our episode today is a little bit about older women and mother-daughter relationships. And I was thinking, <laughs> I have seen my daughter who went to college this fall. She's come back a few weekends. And, you know, you can always count on your children to be brutally honest with you. <laughs> you know, I don't know that I'm the best dresser in the world, but I also don't think I'm a horrible dresser, but she did not like apparently the outfit that I had on that day. And she told me that she thinks that my fashion sense would be considered, uh, what'd she say? Slutty Mennonite or something like that. (laughs) Because I I had on like a denim shirt, a skirt or something. Maybe did you have like some cleavage going on there? Because I'm like, well, I did have on like a tank top underneath. So that Uh might be the, that might be the slutty part. Yeah. I might, I had on a tank top. So maybe there was like a little bit of cleavage, but I thought that was pretty funny. And, um, yeah, you were insulted though. You know, I mean, is it, is it the slutty part or the the part? Like what part do you find offensive? I just think that mother daughter relationships can be fraught sometimes, which is is something that this book talks about. But that was just my own little funny experience with my 18-year-old daughter this week. But now I can laugh about it. Now I think it's pretty funny. But at the time, I'm like, what? (laughs) Well, and here's the thing. Like, you're a better dresser than I am. So I would hate for Susie to expound on what she thinks of my fashion sense. Uh, Well, here's the thing. I think sometimes 
like her especially like I think she thinks a lot of things I wear are frumpy maybe they are I don't know but I can't wear what she would wear do you know what I mean like if I was dressing like an 18 year old that would not look right if like, you were dressing like that we would not be friends because <laughs> I mean we have middle-aged bodies here's the thing even some of these supermodels, you you get to a certain age and you're you just don't have a twenty year old body. Well, you even know? if you do, you maybe shouldn't be wearing it anyway. Like I don't know. Like I, I at forty nine do not need to be wearing sweatshirts that have been cropped. Do you know what I mean? Like I, I don't know. <laughs> Parenting is a it's a hard job. Yeah, you got to have thick skin. You got to have thick skin. Fair. You know, I mean, there's some things that. You know, I, I listen to my kids and take it to heart. But then there's other things where I'm like, no, shut up. <laughs> no, <laughs> you don't know anything. So you don't know anything. That's our perfect segue. Into- <laughs> well, how, how about we say this? I sometimes turn to the wisdom of my own mother in how yeah. I manage my relationships with my kids. And so, you know, we have a, a friend who has children younger than us and both of her parents are deceased. And I would think that would be really hard, you know, because you don't have somebody right there that you can call to get that insight. To say, to say did I ever do this? Right. <laughs> and when I did, what did you do? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Did you also want to knock me clear across the room when I did this kind of stuff? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, all right. Well, let's talk to Grace. Sounds good. Let's do it. Grace Salmon, thank you so much for joining us today. It is a genuine pleasure to be with both of you. Thanks so much. So tell us just a little bit uh, about you. You've had a bit of a previous life in, in education. So tell us about that? I have had probably several previous lives, but my most recent one was I owned and operated an educational consulting firm that worked mostly in high schools around the entire United States. We worked in 32 different states on tribal lands with the federal government. Our focus was really taking these large high schools, usually urban high schools, but not exclusively, and creating smaller learning communities within those so that the teaching and the learning was far more personalized. And we saw huge learning gains among kids in that format. We saw teachers who just loved teaching in a whole new way. So I did that amazing journey across the United States, traveling about 200 days a year. And it was just such a gift and such a wonderful learning experience to share that with people. Well, let's go back even farther than that. You obviously love to write and read now. Were you always a big reader? Did you read a lot as a, as a child? I did read a lot, and I loved those little kits that you had in elementary school where you could read ahead and color coordinate everything, you know, if you were in the purple group. So I did love to read. But the thing that really turned me on to reading, I think I was probably about nine years old, and my brother Bob gave me a copy of Black Beauty by Anna Sewell. And it just transformed my world. I sat there entire Christmas day. I remember curled up by the heater. It's, it makes this lovely little scene. It's not like my house was cold. But I would, there I was by the heater, you know, <laughs> as poor black beauty was out in the snow. And I just fell in love with the way she wrote. And it wasn't until really my adult years that I realized how much Anna Sewell was putting into that book about women's rights and animal rights 
And she only lived, I think, five months after it was published. Mm -hmm. But it was already on the way to being a bestseller and I think is still considered one of the top 10 books of children's literature. So that's what really turned me on, that ability to go into another world. And also there was something about a story of reinventing beauty. You know, I always refer to Black Beauty as a she, but actually in the book, Black Beauty is a he. But the horse transforms himself over and over again as life's circumstances happen. And that's a theme I've carried in the reading I do and certainly in the writing of my last book. So I have read your book, but can you give our listeners just a little summary of your novel, The Eves? Thank you for reading it. (laughs) It's the story of the very psychologically complex Jessica Barnett. And her entire footing in life has been her relationship with her two children. And that abruptly is shattered. And she goes into hiding. She gives up on her career, her looks, every single thing about her life. She draws into herself and begins to hide. And she has this very, very bossy friend that says to her, this hiding from the world will stop. I have a group of older women that you need to meet. And in telling their life stories, everything changes. And Jessica, you know, has at this point in her life where she's given up on everything but not her vodka or her lies. (laughs) And somehow through telling these stories of these diverse and older women, everything begins to change, not only Jessica's lives, but the lives of the older women. It's very much a coming of age novel for everybody in the book. Yeah. So, you know, the film industry and and even to some extent, the publishing world seems to have a lack of willingness to create films or books for older women audiences or with older women characters. And so occasionally there's some really good ones. Uh, I think of Frances McDormand in No Man Land is a film version. But overall, older women seem to be forgotten a little bit. So what motivated you to write about older women in your book? Well, first, I think you're absolutely right. You know, Gina Davis is particularly younger than I am. And she just wrote an article, I think I saw it in USA Today, about the lack of roles for older women. And one of the things is not only is there that lack of roles, I don't understand it because if you look at the American demographic, the baby boomers, where I fall squarely, we are still the bulk of the population for about another 10 to 15 years. So I'm not sure why somebody's not pandering to our interests. But I think there's a saying in the author world that says, write the book you want to read. And that's what I did with the Eves, because I was at that point where I had decided I could not travel 200 days a year anymore. My parents were deceased. My children were adults. I was very much at this crossroads of who am I without those roles of mother, worker, child, spouse. It was very much for me, where do I see that in literature? And I didn't. And I've also been somebody who always likes to figure things out by writing. So I knew the character was going to be very complex. But I think that what I hear from my readers is that 
they don't see that enough in literature. I think it's one of the reasons The Eaves is doing so well. You know, I'm very grateful for the reviews. I think on all of the major platforms, it's above 4.5 stars. And I think it's because the characters are diverse. They're black people, there are white people, there are people who are part Native American, there's a Latinx family, there's a lesbian couple. And I just think that I want my world to be inclusive and diverse. And I also wanted to learn from those older characters what my life would be on that path. I know for myself, I was one of those people who didn't want to have children because it seemed like people's lives ended. Like they asked the question, when are you going to get married? And then once you get married, they go, when are you going to have children? And then it's like, they stop asking you questions. Uh You know, it's like, there's no big thing after that, you know, now as a person who did marry and did have children and now I'm getting close to 50 and I'm like, yo, I'm still here, you know, and it's a rediscovering of who I am because I'm not, I'm not the same person. So that part of your story, that sort of rediscovering who you are and the depth of who you are, if you take away all those other layers, I thought was really important. Thanks, Carrie. And I think that I heard you on one of your other magnificent podcasts where you said you're at that age where you want to figure out what you're going to do before you grow up or die. Right. (laughs) Amy and I both have that issue. (laughs) And probably after you die, you don't really need to figure it out unless there's another iteration. But I, I do think, you know, I was at that turning point. Who am I without those roles? And it's a wonderful thing to play with. Life on the other side of those roles can be amazing. So in The Eaves, your main character, Jessica, she collects the stories of the people who live at the Grange, which is that communal living endeavor that's outside of Baltimore. So stories and storytelling are what those stories can give to the next generation is something that you emphasize in this book. So why was that important to you to write about? I think because I realized at the moment of my mom's passing, that all of her stories were gone. And there's a passage in the book which is very, very autobiographical. So the story of Joan's death in the book is very much the story of my mom's final passing. And quite honestly, the reaction I had to that was very in that book. And I just realized, oh my gosh, we've had the gift, if you will, of a year knowing that she was going to die. And we asked all the questions and we had all the conversations. But in that moment of her death, I went, oh my gosh, the stories are now gone. And I thought, oh, I'm going to take the time to talk to her sister. And I never did. Mm. Uh, I mean, I talked to her, but not in the way about asking questions. And that's what I wanted to get to in the book as well. The conversations matter. Have those conversations. So that was really a launching point to make sure that we take the time to ask and listen. In my own life, my grandmother, she passed away a few years ago, but she lived to the age of 99. And she was in really good health until probably like the last three or four years of her life. But in that time, those last couple of years, I heard stories that I had never heard the whole other 45 years of my life made me wish that when she was more in her prime, that I could have gotten more stories from her. 
And that's beautiful that you had those stories, and it's also that sense of, oh, I always want more. And we will always want more from those that we love and cherish. But it's so important to get those stories when we can. So the characters who live at the Grange interact with students. That's where Jessica meets them, is there's an event with some local community college students. And sometimes, kind of like middle-aged and older women, community colleges don't really get the attention they deserve. They're often eclipsed by big state universities or private colleges. So did you have experience at the community college level? And if so, did that influence that choice for your book? Very much so. I'm an educator probably first and foremost. You know, I spent 30 years in education, uh, teaching, working across school districts. My first job was in higher ed administration at a university. Where I really thought, though, the nuggets for community in terms of education were these wonderful community colleges. And I really thought I was going to wind up there as an administrator for some reason. I never did anything to pursue it. But I always thought that's where I'm going to find my home, where we are preparing a range of individuals from, you know, 17 through late adult life with a whole varied set of skills. So I'm always thinking about how to make connections. And the community college connections are becoming increasingly important for several reasons. One are they are just a wonderful place for lifelong learning. So I encourage everybody to look at their local community colleges for their very adult learning options. Also, even prior to COVID, regular, if you will, four-year universities and colleges are expensive. And they also sometimes have entrance requirements that can't be met by some students. So increasingly, we're seeing community colleges around the nation become that launching point for students. Many times students can stay, save money because they can stay at home in that situation. So they're great for families. They're great financially. They're just a fabulous resource for communities in general. So I wanted to focus that in a very subtle way in the book and made them partners with the women at the Grange. There's a part of the story that was sort of like a, I don't know, like an aha moment for me. And that is when the narrator, Jessica, she visits Africa by herself and she sees the Lat mm -hmm. Latoro footprint trail in Tanzania. And that is famous because that's where they found footprints where they think humans became upright. And there are some theories that perhaps those footprints are of a mother and her children. And motherhood is one of the overarching themes of your book. And there's a tie sort of between this trip to Africa and these footprints with the idea of the Eves or the first mother. Am I correct about that? Yes, absolutely. Okay. So where did you learn about these footprints and why did you want to incorporate them into your novel? The two chapters on Africa are actually two of my favorite chapters. Interestingly enough, some people totally disregard them and don't think they're important to the story. So I love that you said it was the aha moment because those footprints, I always have a fascination with anthropology. So I vaguely knew about the footprints and I knew about that is the place where they believe that 
man still, and I use that term generically, man, stood erect. And then I had the gift of going to Tanzania and we got to go see the footprints. Now, in reality, you can't go see the footprints. Those are all cordoned off in the side and are preserved for the rest of humanity. But there is a replication of the footprints. And I, I stood at those footprints and I was just so in awe that that vastness, if, you're, if you go to that part of Tanzania, it's very close to the Nagora Nagora crater, which is just magnificent and spreads literally from Tanzania all the way up through Israel and Mesopotamia. And I just felt as small as I ever could. And there was something there that I went, oh my gosh, this is what would have been the turning point for Jessica. She, who was so broken, and so separated, somehow found herself connected and connected to women and the need to stand erect. Hmm. So in the afterwards, you talk about wanting to include, you know, facts for your readers to learn something in a book. And this is a case where I learned something in your book. You're a former educational consultant. Do you think that that's part of the educator in you coming out, wanting to put these little tidbits of information in there? I think it's part of the educator in me, Amy, but I also think it has something to do with the fact that I personally love factoids. Mm. I just love all the little factoids. We're having some work done here at the house, and we live in a part of Florida where one of the workmen said something this morning about, oh, I'm surprised how many cows are here. And I just jumped off into a tangent of, do you know why there are so many cows here? (laughs) So I just love the factoids. So part of that is just my own perhaps quirkiness, but it's also a way that I like to communicate important information. And I like to do it in a way that can be a factoid here or a factoid there. The chapter, for example, on Juneteenth, where the women are talking Mm -hmm. about Juneteenth, that was actually written two years before our last horrific summer where George Floyd was murdered. And I would say most Caucasian women would not have known about Juneteenth prior to Mm -hmm. that summer. And I love that that part of the book is now obsolete because in the book, you know, there's the two characters, one character knows about it, the other one does not. Mm -hmm. That was important for me to build awareness. And in this case, hopefully I don't need to build that awareness around at least that factoid. Well, I loved it that like with the footprints, it really for me at least, it felt like it was connecting me, like this big, long parade of all the mothers. Sometimes I think motherhood can feel sort of isolating, especially I know for myself, I stayed home for many years with my children and it was super isolating. And looking at it, it feels very empowering that way. Like I am in this huge, long line of mothers, you know, since the dawn of time. And that feels very empowering and that you don't feel quite so alone. So I I feel like that's very powerful. That's really beautiful. I love to hear you say it that way, because we also talk and goes into the little factoid part about how if we take all of our mitochondrial DNA, which is, you know, Jessica's a nerd about that, and so am I. If we take that small strand of all women's DNA and we took every woman on the planet 
there'd only be nine subtle variations. Mm. And I love that we're all somehow connected. I hope that builds understanding among women. But I also love how it's passed. That mitochondrial DNA is the mitochondrial DNA you have in you is from your mother, from your grandmother, from all the grandmothers in the past and onto your daughters. That's amazing. So there's been a movement in writing called Own Voices, by which authors from underrepresented groups speak of their own experiences. And I've heard interviews in which white writers have felt like they've had to walk kind of a tightrope in trying to write the stories that are in them and that they want to get out, but also being cognizant that because they're coming from a white viewpoint or perspective, they're not going to have the full story. So I'm wondering, you know, because you you do write about lots of different kinds of people, was that something that you thought about before you wrote? Was that a challenge for you? And did you feel any type of hesitation about writing about Black or Latino or queer characters? I love that we get to talk about this here on your show, because it's such an important question. And I think we can't dance around it, and we can't dance around it, particularly as Caucasian authors. What was important to me was, in the writing, to have a group of diverse characters that I could learn from. I frequently talk about when I write to the youngest character who's 15 and to the oldest character who's 94, I'm writing to different versions of myself in some ways, and I also want to learn from these other characters. So I knew that I wanted the characters to be diverse. That said, I also wanted it to be authentic. And that meant that my beta group of readers had to be diverse. Mm -hmm. So that I sent it out to various friends of mine who I'm lucky to have a diverse group of friends. And I think there's something also important to focus on there. When I did that, if I sent it to my friend Sharon, for example, I would say, I don't expect you to speak for all Black women. Mm. Not one group is monolithic. You know, so I can't speak for all white writers, for example. But I can say this white writer can go to diverse people and know that I have to at least have some touchstones to see, is there anything off? Is the voice right? Is it capturing an experience? And then realizing I'm probably not going to get it right for everybody because no book is for every person. Mm -hmm. So we have to be open to that as authors, both in terms of reviews, but also in terms of discussions like this. So yes, I was very hesitant and probably quite honestly, more hesitant more recently. Mm. Yeah, because I'm wondering, the own voice has been a push in the last couple of years, but you were writing this before that. So there might not have been as much in the media about it. Do you think that's true? Oh, I think it's very true. I think with not only the focus that we've had on race for the last year and a half, the Me Too movement you know, wherever you are in the political spectrum, nobody was happy in the last two years, you know, so it doesn't matter all of that. So I think there was a sense of how do I express myself authentically and be heard? And how for me, how do I also then share what might be the voices of others? Right. Well, this is a multi-generational novel. And to me, it was interesting to see how Jessica, who is in her 60s, handles a romantic relationship as opposed to Erica, who's the teenage character. 
And Jessica says, what is the appropriate term for the man you trust, look to, enjoy, are sleeping with, rely on, and like a considerable amount? Which I love that phrase, like a considerable amount. That's sort of a a phrase that uh, Jessica uses a lot in here because she's afraid to say love. Meanwhile, for Erica, meeting boys is like this candy and rainbows kind of thing going on. You know, it's all a new experience and it's very thrilling and exciting. So talk a little bit about the differences between romantic love at different ages and your writing about that. Oh, I'd love, love, love how you describe it, how it's candy and rainbows. And Erica (laughs) is all about it, but she's 15, and she could be mid-conversation with all the old women in the room, and a handsome young boy, teenager, whatever, will walk by, and she is like out the door, right? She is just, (laughs) call me, call me. And she's just a stitch, and I was such a loser, such a loser when it came to dating. So I wanted her to have everything I did not, you know? So she was just a delight. And I think that that age is about, or should be about, you know, the exploration, the, who do I like? Let me try them on. Does that work for me? And I never got to do that. With the character of Jessica and Roy, I knew there was going to be a romantic involvement at some point. And I have to be very honest. I put it off in the book as long as I possibly could. I could not imagine writing this scene, knowing my 60-year-old body with my stomach that isn't flat anymore and my boobs that are, I'm sure, I, can I say that on your show? Yes, you can. <laughs> you can. <laughs> my body is not the body of a young even 45, 50, 55 year old. So I just kept putting that off in the book going, oh my goodness, how are we going to do this? And again, for me, it had to be authentic. And, you know, that's why I also made Roy about the same age. So his belly is bigger than it used to be. (laughs) But honest to goodness, I know that in my mind, if I was being a real plotter, I would have made that happen several chapters before it did. And I just got there and went, okay, this is it. This is how it's going to be. And I do like that it is a different kind of love. And I've only been married eight and a half years to my husband. And it is a very different kind of love. It is more, for me, more settling, more grounding. And we know who we are differently. I do think it's a different kind of love. Well, and Amy and I have both, I mean, she's been married to her spouse for what, 20, what is it? 25 years, 26 years. Uh, I have to do the math in my head. That's embarrassing. (laughs) 27, Amy. I think think it is about 27. (laughs) And I've been married almost 24 years. And, you know, sometimes I think about when I was a teenager and I remember thinking this, thinking, oh my God. I mean, of course I thought my parents were gross, but (laughs) you know, especially as it involved like the two of them together in any capacity. But I was like, oh my God, they're so not romantic. And sometimes I think of that because I think about how our children would look at me and my husband. Our relationship now is totally different than what our relationship was, you know, when we first got married. We're almost 24 years older and now we have three kids and two cats and a house and older parents and it it just changes. And so I could appreciate Jessica's, even though it's a new relationship for her and it, and it is exciting, but it's totally different from that anxiety and 
I mean, mostly I think, gosh, you get to a certain age and you just don't, you're just too tired to be that enthusiastic. (laughs) (laughs) And you're right. You know, I love how she says, I like you a considerable amount because she is, you know, as I've said before, she's so broken, but she's also so horribly afraid to engage back in life and love. So she has to learn that from the older women and also from Tobias, who is one of my favorite characters. So we've talked about motherhood being a a big idea in the book. And some of it, too, it's not just being a mother, but it's about the type of mother you are. And, you know, none of us, even though we may try mightily to be perfect mothers, it's just not going to happen. And so we just do the best that we can do. And so Jessica deals with that with her own children. And she kind of looks to some of the Eves as her own mother figures. But the Eves themselves have strained relationships with their children. And so parenting your own children and being parented as an adult child is definitely not easy. What are some things you wanted your readers to take away from the book in relation to to that topic? I think it goes back carry to that idea of conversations, that first and foremost, we need to listen to each other well, and we need to really hear people, and we need to have the variety of conversations. You know, nobody wakes up in the morning, I don't think, and says, boy, I'm going to be a really bad mother today. <laughs> Let me see if I can screw my kid up today. <laughs> and... I think that somehow we sometimes experience that as children, like, oh my gosh, how did that happen to me? And so much of that, as you age, realizes just wasted energy. Mm. So I wanted there to be an array of different types of relationships. I, I wanted Jessica, first and foremost, not to feel alone. I think so often we, in every aspect of our lives, look out at the world and say, oh, everybody else is doing so well. Mm. There's actually a term for it in Facebook world, which I don't know what it is, but it's, you know, everybody always uh, posts only the happy stuff. Right, right. And now people are getting depressed because they think the whole world is really happy. But the others all have some sort of journey that they've had. And sometimes I think there's even a scene where Jan and her daughter are together and they don't even know why they're not comfortable with each other. Mm. And they have to feel their way through that. So motherhood is probably, and maybe parenthood in general, I shouldn't make it just a woman's thing, but parenthood is a pretty hard job. Mm-hmm. And being a child is a pretty hard job. So I wanted there to be scenarios that readers could resonate with. And that's been a really delightful part of the time that the book has been out, when people have emailed me and said, boy, this was so much like you know, X, Y, or Z. And there's an adoption story in the book. And I had a reader the other day say, oh my gosh, that was perfect. So I wanted that central. So as someone who is close to 50 years herself, and so is is Carrie, one of my favorite parts of the novel was the idea of that we aren't done with life just because of the age that we are. And so the Eves, who were all older women, much older women, weren't done just because we think of them as old people or oldies, as you call them in the book. Yes. There can be many chapters in somebody's life. So is this something that you have experienced in your own life? And I hear that you have a new radio show. (laughs) (laughs) My characters were so smart, Carrie and Amy. I can't believe it. (laughs) What I loved about it is 
So part of it I already shared. I thought I was kind of done when I started writing. I didn't know who I was going to be for the next X years. So I really thought I had that sense of being done. What I didn't know was that we really are not. And I constantly have to remind myself about that. I'm 68 next month. And I just started a new radio show, which I never, ever could have envisioned. I did an interview on a wonderful radio station with a woman named Dr. Gail Carson. And she owns a radio station called The Spunky Old Broad. And I was like, oh, and then at the, during the show and then afterwards, she was like, so are you ready to be a spunky old broad? And I was like, oh, I don't know. That doesn't feel comfortable. But she was so wonderful. She called me up after we taped and said, I loved our interview. I think you need to have your own radio show and you are not done. And I loved her message. I love that she used the message of my book back in my face to tell me I was not done. And the real magic and maybe the tragedy of this story is that Gail passed away two weeks ago. But she was active on her radio station doing, I think, 13 shows a week. Wow. Uh, Up until a very, very short time before her passing. And there is that scene in the book where the very haughty Margaret Mary says to one of the characters, Jessica, do not write about the end of our lives as if we are done because we think of ourselves as we are still girls. Mm. That's so true. I mean, I don't feel like I'm 15 any longer, but I also don't feel like I'm 48. You know, I think sometimes the age that we are in our heads doesn't match our body's age. And I think it's great that your mind can still do whatever you want. Absolutely. And just to be open to the experiences. Honestly, if somebody had said to me, even six months ago, you know, you're going to have your own radio show and it's going to be in 148 countries and... I would be, no, that's never going to happen. How would you even make that happen? And then somehow a door opens. So part of that message might be watch for the doors. Grace, it has been awesome talking with you and talking about the eaves. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're all going to talk about what we're reading. We are back with Carrie and with Grace Salmon, and we're going to talk about what we're reading. So Carrie, are you still on audiobooks or have you moved off that yet? No. I just need to know. I'm still doing my audiobooks, but I'm going to talk about a book called Subtract, The Untapped Science of Less by Lydie Klotz. And he is an engineering professor at the University of Virginia. So this book sounded really interesting to me because I tend to be a minimalist. I don't like to shop. I love to get rid of stuff. My family, they hate it. Like it drives them crazy. And I tell them, just be thankful that I haven't gotten rid of you. So, (laughs) you know, I'm like, leave me alone and let me do my thing. But this book, we just have so much, right? I've talked about like cupcakes, Amy, and we've talked about milkshakes and we've talked about donuts and how they're like so extra, right? And so I am anti-extra. Well, this book is about how humans have a hard time with subtracting from their lives. But if we 
learn to see opportunities where we can subtract, then it can open up new possibilities for us. So I'll give you an example that he gives in the book. He talks about how, and this was, I believe in California, there was this giant freeway system that was really, it was just in a, not in a great place. It was clunky. It was big. It blocked people's view of the water and nobody liked it but nobody wanted to tear it all down, right? They didn't want to subtract it because at some point earlier, all this money had been put into building it, which in economic terms is a sunk cost, right? You're not even supposed to factor that in because it's a sunk cost. You've already spent that money a long time ago. But what happened was there was an earthquake. And so because of the earthquake, some of the roadways collapsed. And so then it was like, oh, well, now it's a danger, right? Now we need to get rid of this. So they didn't want to do it on their own. But then when it became necessary, then they didn't have a problem taking down this gigantic freeway. Well, so what happens ultimately is it made people's lives so much better. It brought people together. It was more natural. More people were walking. It became more of a community space. And so he talked about this and about how we don't like to subtract because think of it, people don't reduce stuff in their house. They don't take away space in their house. They always add an addition, right? And so I thought this was just a really fascinating way to look at life. And that's what he does. It's not just this idea of roadways, but it was kind of in a lot of different situations. What are situations where it might make more sense and ultimately improve our lives if we, instead of looking at how we can do more and bigger and better, if we say, what can we take away and see if that improves things? I think there's a lot of validity in asking, what can we take away? So anyway, if you're the type of person who loves to go buy more and more and more and more, you're probably going to hate this book. But if you're like me and and you kind of like the idea of looking at situations differently and maybe in a way that is not necessarily innate, you know, like something that you're going to do automatically, but you sort of have to train your brain to think that way, you might like this book. So Well, you know, I like stuff a lot more than you do, but I think you can apply that to other things. I mean, in the art world, there's something called negative space, right? Right. And um, so there's that whole thing. And even like when I'm editing an episode, I take something that's very long, but by subtracting, like taking out things that, you know, maybe uh, are a tangent or a periphery, I boil the episode down to the essence of it, right? And I always think that it makes it stronger than if I aired the episode completely as it was recorded. So I think you can apply it to other things, even if you like stuff like I do. Definitely. Definitely. (laughs) Well, Grace, what have you been reading? First of all, say the name of the book again for us, Carrie. Sure. It's called Subtract, The Untapped Science of Less. That's amazing. I, you know, it's that whole less is more phenomena. And I think in some ways I've learned that during this whole pandemic of, you know, I used to go out to dinner a whole lot more and it's kind of nice to go out less. But in terms of what I'm reading, I think you also jarred something for me. I used to read a lot of historical fiction and then I began to read in all sorts of different genres. So just listening to you, Carrie, makes me realize there are other genres still that I'm not exploring. So thanks for that. I think that I want to get back to more historical fiction. Recently, I have an author friend who writes young adult 
historical fiction. And she's written one book that's coming out, I think, next month called Dolly Madison and the War of 1812. And she's also written uh, Susanna's Midnight Ride, which is the story of a young girl during the Civil War. And I liked it because it was an easy way to get back into the history of historical fiction that I like so much, but it's also filled with factoids that I didn't mm. know. And we, in our another segment, we talked about factoids. So things like Dolly Madison introduced ice cream as a big thing in the Washington circles. And during that period in the early 1800s, I bet you'll never guess what is the most popular flavor of ice cream. It's not just vanilla. Oyster. Oyster. Oh, oh my ooh. God. Oyster ice cream. So ooh. I love that Libby McNamee, who's the author of those books, has all that stuff in there because look at that. It's, yeah. it's oyster ice cream. Carrot was also very popular. You can see that that might have worked for people. So uh, historical fiction and also new to me are memoirs. I just finished Sandel Morris's The Spiral Shell, which is one of the most beautifully written books. It's her command of the language is absolutely magnificent. And it's the story of finding herself through a small town in France and the uh, resistance movement. So that was beautiful. And then another new voice for me is Southern fiction, mm. which I never really gave a lot of thought to before, except for probably To Kill a Mockingbird. But there's a woman named Claire Fullerton who wrote a book called Little T and Morning Dove. And it's so beautiful to read Claire's words. She says she works with a sentence word for word until every sentence sings. Hmm. And that's something oh. I want to do as a writer. So that's a little bit all over for where I'm reading. But that's a little bit where I am in reading right now. That's very cool. The memoir you were talking about, and you said the resistance, are you referring to World War II? The resistance yes. in World War II? Okay. Yes. Okay. The That's spiral funny. shell. I am. I, I do love a good memoir. Yeah. Those all sound good. Well, Amy, you have so many things on Goodreads. I, I can't keep up. Well, the one I'm going to talk about today is one that you have read too, Carrie, because it was our book club pick last month. It's a book called Brave Girl, Quiet Girl by Catherine Ryan Hyde. And it was published last year, 2020, and it's a novel that has some similar themes of motherhood that your book has, Grace. But this book takes place in Los Angeles, and the main character, Brooke, she's a divorced single mother, and she's living with her own mother, with whom she has a very fraught relationship. Her mother is just not a very nice person, and it's very difficult. But Brooke is living with her until she can get back on her feet, and she's working at a department store and doesn't have enough money to pay for childcare and rent in a Los Angeles market. And Brooke has a two-year-old daughter named Etta. And in the opening chapters of the book, Brooke is driving her mother's BMW. Her mother is quite well off financially. She's driving this BMW through Los Angeles. And when she's at a stoplight, she is carjacked by a thug who throws her out of the car, takes off with her car, with Etta, her daughter, still strapped into her car seat. Of course, it's every mother's nightmare, right? Mm -hmm. So what happens next is that the carjacker, once he realizes that there's a child in the back, he stops the car, takes Etta in the car seat out, leaves her on the side of the street for someone else to find, and he takes off with the car. Well, Etta is found. She's found by Molly. And Molly is a homeless teenager 
who's originally from Utah, and she's been living on the streets ever since she was turned out of the house by her parents. And Molly loves kids, and she was the oldest of several girls in her family. So Molly protects Etta and takes care of her until she's able to turn her over to the authorities. And in the middle of the night, she whispers to her brave girl, quiet girl over and over again to help keep Etta calm. And that's where the title of the book comes from. But it seems like it would be an easy thing to turn Etta in, right? But in actuality, she begs people on the street to help her and Etta. And no one will stop because she looks dirty and she looks like a vagrant and people walk on by like she's invisible. But eventually a cop stops and she's able to get Etta back to her mom. So this is the start of a very strange relationship between Brooke and Molly. Brooke is suspicious of Molly, and yet Etta keeps asking for her. And eventually Brooke decides she wants to help Molly. But Brooke is so privileged in so many ways, and and she doesn't really understand Molly's situation. There are several different kinds of mother-daughter relationships in this book. There's Brooke's relationship with her own mother, who she can't stand. There's Brooke's relationship with her child. There's Brooke's connection to Molly, which is almost like a surrogate mother relationship. And then there's Molly's estranged relationship with her biological mother. And I found the exploration that we have to do in this book about the most primal of bonds intriguing, and it made me really have to ponder it in my head. And the other thing I really liked about this book was the portrayal of homelessness. And I've never really read a book about that before, especially teenage homelessness. And Hyde really writes convincingly about how difficult simple things can be for a homeless person. Like, for instance, just trying to get somewhere in town by bus. So getting enough change for the bus fare, changing buses, walking the rest of the way. And then if the person you're looking for isn't there, being stranded somewhere because you don't have enough money to get back. This is like an all day or a two day affair just to get across town. So this is just one thing that seems so simple to, I'm putting this in quotes, an average person, but not so much for someone who has nothing. This book wasn't perfect. There were some things that I found a little bit unbelievable, and I really didn't like Brooke's character, but I became so invested in Molly's character that it made up for it. I just loved, I just loved Molly. I gave this one four stars. I really enjoyed it, and I think it's the perfect kind of book for a book club that likes to read women's fiction, because you could have lots of really deep conversations about motherhood and and what it means, and our book club had a particularly good discussion about it. Mm -hmm. That was a beautiful sure. review. I want to be in your book club. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> okay. Well, <laughs> these all sound good. We are going to take a short break. And when we come back, Grace is going to answer her three about me. We are back with Grace. Are you ready for your questions? I am, and I'm curious. (laughs) Okay. So you have done extensive travel in your career, and your book reflects that with parts taking place in Norway and Africa. And you're an administrator on the Facebook group called Bookish Road Trips. So tell us about that group and what is a bookish road trip you'd love to take but haven't yet, or one you've taken and would recommend to somebody else. Oh, I love to travel, and I think that's been one of the hard things for so many of us in this last year plus of the pandemic, not having that sense of being able to travel. So I'm always so grateful that we've been able to connect across states and countries and media like we are today. 
the bookish road trip is for me, the place I hang out most in social media, it is a group of 2,300 and growing individuals. Some are authors, some are readers. Everybody likes to travel. And I learned so much and I remember so much. I did a post this week about where are some of the places that you've traveled. And people are posting all sorts of things that I wanted to write down and see and do. So it's a wonderful place to get ideas and to share ideas. My favorite kind of travel is doing road trips. The favorite road trip I ever did was my husband and I drove cross country from LA to Southern Florida, where we live. Oh, wow. And it was such a blast. First of all, even though we're very, very much in love being in a car for two and a half weeks, you never know exactly how that's going to work out. (laughs) That can be a strain for anybody, I think. (laughs) So we, we never had one odd moment. One of the things we do at Bookish Road Trips is to always talk about travel tips. So my travel tip to everybody is always to find out whether you are a planner or you like to drive by the seat of your pants. And we were able to strike a balance there where as long as I knew where I was going to put my head at night, I was great. We could take all sorts of little side trips like to Clovis, New Mexico, which is this tiny, tiny little town. But we probably had one of the best meals of our lives there. And it was just outside the town, there was a museum where I would have never stopped called the Billy the Kid Museum. Hmm. And I didn't really care about Billy the Kid a whole lot, but the man who runs it, Mr. Sweet, had the most amazing collection of Native American pottery. And Hmm. we got there 15 minutes before it closed and we were there for two hours. Oh my God. In terms of where I would want to go, any place right now. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. That's right. Anywhere. All right. So question number two, but on Instagram, you have snapped lots of great pictures of some delicious charcuterie boards that you have created. And I know here in Louisville, Kentucky, especially during the pandemic, charcuterie boards and places that were creating them and like would deliver them to your house, they have become a huge, huge deal. So what are some of the top cheeses that you like to use in your charcuterie boards? I'm a really basic girl in terms of my cheeses. I love a good brie. I love a brie with blue cheese within it. Recently, I've gotten a cheddar with some um, hatch chilies. Hatch is a part of New Mexico that uh, is specializing in its chilies. So I like that. And I like a good horseradish cheese to kind of set things off. But there also has to be a very boring cheddar Yeah. I think cheddar and crackers are the sort of traditional that even if you like fancy cheeses, you're also really going to like just, you know, a basic cheddar and cracker. Yes. I feel so much more challenged now. You know, when I started doing these, I just called them cheese boards or appetizer trays. And then all of a sudden the world (laughs) turned them into charcuterie boards and it's a thing. I I mean, cheese just makes me happy. It's a good comfort food. I really like this question is what I'm saying. So, (laughs) Well, and there's so much more to the charcuterie boards than the cheese, right? You have to have the nuts. You have to have the crackers. You have to have the meats. It's all got to be arranged. All right. Last question before we, you know, bore everybody to death with talk about cheese. All right. Last question. The communal living house in the book, The Eaves, is eco-friendly and has many environmental sustaining features, including the lovable loo, which is a composting toilet, that none of the Eaves are super excited about at first, but I think they get used to it. So what is your experience with eco-friendly building and what is a favorite feature you'd want in your own home? 
My experience really comes from my son who lived entirely off the grid for six months one summer. And they worked at a grange, actually. So some of that, I lifted that experience and tucked it into the eaves. But that really opened my eyes to how much we have. You were talking about that in your book recommendation section of our time today. How much we have and how much we can really do without. I don't think I could ever do without electricity and certainly the women in the eaves do without nothing. It's quite you know, comfortable living. But that experience led me to think about what could I do without. And then my daughter lived for a little while in Taos, New Mexico, in what they called an earth ship. And indeed, that was just a house that ran on car batteries. The entire mm. house ran on 12 car batteries. And you see that echoed in the eaves as well, that when they left the house, they turned off 11 of the car batteries and the one car battery continued to just run the air conditioner and the refrigerator. So I really think that that challenged my thinking about sustainable living in general. And to a very basic extent, like, do I recycle enough? Do I have the air conditioner too high? I don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about that, but I do think that it's a challenge for me to think, what can I do without? What can I have less of? And in terms of this environment, I have a girlfriend who redid her whole house and every single thing was made out of recycled materials. So where I have granite countertops, she does have these amazing countertops that look just like granite, but they're made out of recycled paper and polished. Oh, wow. I so, wondered if that was a real thing when I read it about it in your book, and I thought, I need to look into that. That's a real rabbit hole that I can go down as an author, and many authors go down. All of those recyclable places and things are very real. If I had one feature I would probably like to have, I live in Florida, there's no excuse for me not to have solar power, and I don't. Mm -hmm. Well, Grace, it has been great chatting with you, learning about your experiences and, and having you tell us more about the eaves. And we recommend that other people check it out. It was great being with both of you, Amy and Carrie. Thank you for having me. You can find Grace Salmon on Instagram at Grace Salmon Writes and on Facebook at Bookish Road Trip. You can find links to her radio show at her website, www.gracesalmon.net. Did you know you can find a list of all the books, podcasts, movies, and TV shows we talk about on our show? You don't need to have a pencil and paper sitting right next to you to write down all the titles you hear us mention. For show notes for any episode, go to our website at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. The show notes are also included on the description of the episode on your podcast player. And we have a brand new updated website that has some great new features, including listener book recommendations and pictures of our guest pets. So come by and take a look. If you like what we're doing with the show, tell a friend. Word of mouth is one of the best ways to help people find us. Thanks for joining us this week. Follow us on Facebook at The Perks of Being a Book Lover or on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives at forwardradio.org.